Thanks for listening to Access Utah. Before we jump into a topic for today, unfinished business from yesterday. You recall we had reaction uh, to the historic 2016 presidential election uh, yesterday on the program, and uh, we had this come in after the program. I want to get this out. This is from Steve, who says, The 800-point plummet in the Dow Jones futures market this morning captures my deep foreboding. I cannot believe we have elected as President of the United States, though the popular vote did go against him, a racist, sexist, semi-successful businessman who has filed bankruptcy six times, has paid off the Republican Attorney General in Florida to shut down an investigation into the fraudulent practices of Trump University, who lies far more than he speaks the truth, a man who toys with dangerous ideas such as the use and proliferation of nuclear weapons, man who cannot speak a coherent sentence and is astonishingly ignorant of public policy and world events. Russia and the KKK are both pleased, but the rest of the world shares my deep foreboding. The electoral system is busted and regularly, nay, usually, defeats the will of the voters. This is the second time in recent history that even though the Democrat won the popular vote, the Republican won the presidency. Because each state sends two senators to Washington, no matter what its population, the votes of voters in large large population states are vitiated. Those of small population states are greatly magnified. Congressional districts are so deeply gerrymandered that Republicans control the House, even though the number of votes cast for Democratic candidates exceeds those uh, cast for Republicans by more than a million votes last time around. And it's not just at the national level. As recent books such as, and I can't say this on the air, I'll uh, just call it Rat Expletive, and The Great Suppression illustrate the Republicans have rigged the system all the way down to the local level with the voter suppression, dirty tricks, and dark money. The Republican majority on the Supreme Court countenances all these trends and practices, and now that Republicans are in position to control the court for a very long time into the future, I see little hope for correction. It's a dark time. That is uh, Steve. Thanks for that. You can keep those coming. Hope that you will. Your comments on the election to upraxis at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to Access Utah Today. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking uh, this hour with investigative reporter Jessica Luther. Her new book is Unsportsmanlike Conduct, College Football and the Politics of Rape. And she uses uh, the analogy of a playbook, the playbook that football teams use. And She says this book is about a different kind of playbook, the one coaches, teams, universities, police, communities, the media, and fans seem to follow whenever a college football player is accused of sexual assault. She says the NCAA, athletic departments, universities, the media, they run the same plays over and over again when these stories break. And if everyone runs his play well, scrutiny dies down quickly. No institution ever has to change how it operates, and the evaporation of these cases into nothingness looks natural. She suggests, in part two of her book, some changes to this playbook. Uh, Jessica Luther is uh, an independent writer, investigative journalist living in Austin, Texas. Her work on sports and culture has appeared in the Texas Observer and the Austin Chronicle and at Sports Illustrated, Texas Monthly, Vice Sports, Guardian Sport, and Bleacher Report. Her work gained national attention in August of uh, last year when writing for Texas Monthly. Uh, She and Dan Solomon broke open the story about a Baylor football player on trial for sexual assault, a case known uh, uh, by only a few in the community, not reported in the media for nearly uh, two years, an example of what she's talking about in the book. Jessica Luther, uh, welcome to the program. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Uh, I wonder if we could uh, start with the uh, startling and, and depressing statistics. Uh, that you, you cite several of these uh, uh, in, in the book. 
um, that, that um, on college campuses, a, a uh, well, a, a far too high number of, of women um, are, are raped every year. Yeah, the going stat, the one that we hear a lot, is that 20% of women, when they leave campus, when they leave the university, uh, will have been the victim of sexual assault. So, I mean, that's, yeah, that's an incredibly high number. And almost no one reports this crime to any institution or law enforcement. Or law enforcement, excuse me. And th- this is a startling statistic. This is, uh, this is in the introduction uh, to, the, to the book. I'm going to pull this up here. Um, by uh, uh, Dave Zirin, editor of Edge of Sports Books. And he, he cites this one. Uh, he says, uh, one study showed that uh, college athletes make up 3.3% of male students, but 19% of those accused of sexual assault. So if, if that is true, there, there's something going on there. Yeah, and I mean, that I will say that is one study, and it's, you know it's been a while since we've really had a good study on this to determine it. And I, I get a little nervous around these kind of stats because, I mean, I obviously wrote a book on this issue with college football, but I don't want to make it seem like if you aren't hanging out with athletes that you can't be the victim of this kind of violence. Um, certainly there are other students on campuses perpetrating this kind of crime. Um, but yeah, I do think there's a reason that we should be interrogating athletes and athletic departments part a big reason for me is that there's a system around them to protect them if and when they are accused of this kind of violence and dave zirin does say in this introduction you you uh, talk about this in the book as well that uh, i'll just quote him he says the world has a violence against women and sexual assault problem and the united states has a violence against women and sexual assault problem college campuses have a you know violence against women and sexual assault problem this is this is not in isolation you've just happened to concentrate on on the intersection of athletics and and sexual violence right exactly i actually think i i think we talk about it more when an athlete is involved especially a college athlete of a very popular sport people have a deep identification with these teams and with the need for them to win like they feel personally invested in that and so when a player gets in trouble they care about what's going to happen to that player and to their team. And so they end up talking about it. So I'm, for me, this is about intervening where we're having the conversation to try to fix it, fix how we talk about this. And I also love college football. So I care about the topic itself, but I do think, you know, whether or not it's happening more in that space, we're talking about it more there. Uh, well, let's talk about that. Uh, you, you begin the book saying, I was born with garnet and gold blood. You're talking about Florida State University. I am, yes. My parents both went to Florida State, and my dad really taught me what it taught me about Florida State fandom back in, you know, when I was a little girl. There was one TV in the house, and every Saturday we would watch Florida State football, and he took me to the games, and I only applied to one university which is kind of wild when I think back on it. I was going to go to Florida State, and I did, and I went to every home game while I was there, and this has been a big thing for me in my life, and, um, you know, this is part of where this work comes from because one of the most high-profile cases of college football and sexual assault in the last decade involved the quarterback at Florida State when it came out in November 2013 that Jameis Winston had been under investigation for sexual assault for 11 months and the Tallahassee Police Department had kind of just not done anything about it and it was a humongous 
national conversation for a very long time. And that's when I really started to write about this and get involved in, in talking about this and reporting on it. Uh, so that was that was the point where you where you got involved. Um, and of course, you're seeing this as a reporter. You're also, I guess, feeling this uh, as a fan. So you're you're kind of living at that that intersection. What did that what did that do to you as as a fan to to look into this? Yeah, it's been a very complicated relationship between me and college football over the last three years or so, and especially with my own team. And I, I will say this season, I have not really watched. It's much harder for me now to, to just, I know too much. I think about survivors when I watch these games and I instantly get sad about it. I have a hard time watching coaches who I know um, have really minimized this issue in their own programs. And I want, and I want to say, like, I also have problems with the sort of overall exploitation of the system. It's hard for me to watch these guys crash into each other, what they're doing to their bodies and brains, knowing that, you know, they're not going to get medical care from this university once they graduate. Um, you know, the kind of educations that they're getting, that's supposed to be the, you know, that's the reward that they're getting for doing this for the university. And we know that there are schools that skirt that education in order to keep them on the field rather than really helping them get the education that they should be getting. And then, you know, for black and for black basketball players and football players, they get their degrees at a much less, um, uh, much less often than their white counterparts. And that those kind of things within the system just make it very hard for me to watch and enjoy the game like I used to. I wonder if you could, uh, you, you were involved in, in uh, breaking open the story from Baylor, and of course it went uh, mm-hmm. went very wide. And this is this is an illustration. I wonder if you could take us through the Baylor case and illustrate this is, is not just players, not just the, the sexual assault, but it's, it's institutions as, as well. Uh, and starting with the fact that uh, this particular case had not broken until you and Dan Solomon... Uh, did that, I guess, following up on a tip. Yeah, I got a tip um, on August 5th, 2015. I remember the day extremely well. It's pretty visceral for me. And someone gave me the name of this player in, at Baylor, and they said he was going to trial for sexual assault. And when I looked him up, I literally could find nothing, nothing at all to indicate that that was true, which seemed very strange to me, the, the fact that they told me he was going to trial. That's a very specific detail uh, and I contacted my friend Dan, and he's better at Google, and he found the guy's name on a trial docket, and we realized he was going to trial in about 10 days. So we drove to Waco that day, and there was a huge case file about it. And, yeah, the local media, the very first time they published anything about the case was August 5th when Dan and I were on our way back to Austin, about an hour and a half drive from Waco, and while on that car trip, the first, the first local news story broke. Um, so it did take a long time. He had actually, you know, it was almost at the time when he went to trial, it had been almost two years since she first reported, which she reported to the Waco police department as well as to Baylor. And it had been over a year since he'd actually been indicted, um, by a grand jury and it just hadn't hit anywhere. And then, you know, what came out was that he had had trouble at Boise state he was dismissed from the team after sort of a string of issues, the last one being a violent incident where he hurt himself, that, but the team was concerned about his girlfriend and his roommate, 
about what violence he could do to them. So they had warned them away from him. They dismissed him from the team. He goes to Baylor. He's only there for about two and a half months before he rapes this woman. And I mean, those are just, you know, questions that remain for me are sort of like, what did Baylor do for him when he got there? Did they help him in any way? Um, and we still don't know these kind of things. And, and so it sort of unraveled from there. It turns out that over the last five or six years, 17 football players have been accused by 19 women. Uh, Baylor has come out and said that that includes four alleged gang rapes. Um, you know, it's just sort of the extent of the issue is huge. No one was talking about it when they did. It was to minimize it. There's a, an attempt to isolate all these cases from one another. Everyone wants to talk about this one gang rape, this one player who was convicted, this other player who was convicted, you know, all these things in isolation to each other. But in the end, Art Bryles, the head football coach and an incredibly good football coach who had a very, very good team, he was fired because of what had happened, the sort of cultural failure under you know the harm that was done under his watch. So that that's a weird thing about Baylor, mm-hmm. that level of accountability. But um, but yeah, it's been it's been quite a thing to watch it all unfold over the last year or so. So you're saying that's you're saying that's unusual, Art Browles being being fired. That's that's yes. a, are there other cases around the country where coaches been been retained despite uh, what seems like institutional failures like this? Oh, sure. Um, the one that I think of all the time, actually, at this point is Tennessee. Uh, earlier this year, eight women came forward uh, with a lawsuit against six football players. Part of that included one football player who had helped a woman who said that she had been raped by two men. Those men are currently charged with sexual assault. And he drove her to the hospital, this other football player, and he was physically attacked by another football player on the team and butch jones said that he had betrayed the team by helping this woman and all of this came out and they settled the lawsuit and it just went away and butch jones still is the coach there um it's not clear that anything has changed at tennessee they they tried very hard to say that this was not a cultural issue within the team or within the athletic department um, and it seems to have worked. People seem to have moved on from this, despite, to me, what was a terrible amount of information, and, you know, especially against these women, but also that other football player who almost immediately transferred after this happened. He, he went to another school. Um, and, yeah, Butch Jones is still there and probably will be until he starts losing football games. Yeah, that's the that's the key, isn't it? It's it's big money, right? And and winning uh, papers over a lot. Yes, I mean, you know, the book in the book I have about 120 cases over about a four decade period, which is not a ton. They're only media reported cases, um, which is important. They're the ones I could find that have been reported in the media, and we've already talked about how underreported it is uh, of of a crime. But, you know, most of these are Division One, but there are Division Three schools that do not have the money, right, that don't have the sort of financial backing behind the team. So there's, there's something beyond the money. I want to make sure to say that. But for Division One teams, I mean, we are talking huge amounts of money. I mean, the college football industry every year makes something like $3 billion. I think it just came out that Jim Harbaugh at Michigan, the head coach is going to get paid $9 million next year, uh, you know, 
I live in Austin, Texas. The University of Texas pulls down like $125 million a year, their football program. Uh, the amount of money is, is incredible. And so, yeah, all these people have a deep financial investment in keeping these guys on the field and continuing to win. And these coaches, not only do they have poor job security, if you lose, you get fired. But if you win, they often build into their contract if you – if you go to a bowl game, if you go to the playoff, if you go to the national championship, if you win it, at each of those steps, you get more money. You get bonuses. So, yeah, the, the kind of financial backing that keeps these guys on the field that props up this system that actively minimizes and ignores off-field issues, especially this kind of violence, is a, is a real thing. Let's take a break. When we come back more with uh, Jessica Luther, she's an investigative reporter. She was instrumental in breaking that story at uh, Baylor. Uh, the book is Unsportsmanlike Conduct, College Football and the Politics of Rape. When we come back, I want to bring up a, a case uh, from here in Logan at Utah State University where we're located. Uh, football por- player Tori Green um, with, uh, I think, four women uh, separately reported uh, rape allegations against him. That was in 2015. But it wasn't uh, until uh, this year that uh, when he was uh, playing for, at least trying out with the Atlanta Fal- Falcons, that this came out. Uh, he was dropped by the Falcons, and now he's been charged with uh, with uh, sexual assault. Um, I want to talk about this and, and institution. Uh, USU has, uh, President San Albrecht here, uh, ordered a review into procedures, and that report has now come back. Uh, so we'll bring it home here to Utah State. We can also talk about a uh, case at uh, BYU and, and other places as we go along. And you're welcome to join this conversation at upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com, or 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. More following the break. Did you know that the damage to the brain brought on by Alzheimer's disease may begin years or even decades before you begin to show signs of memory problems? That is why it is never too early to start making these healthy lifestyle changes. Heart-healthy behavior can also significantly reduce the risk of Alzheimer's disease. You can start now doing things that would be good for you anyway, like maintaining a healthy weight, eating right, getting regular exercise, managing stress, and nurturing healthy relationships. It also helps to get enough sleep. And of course, your risk to both your heart and your brain is lower if you don't smoke. This segment of Did You Know That? has been brought to you by our members and the Emma Eccles-Jones College of Education and Human Services committed to mentoring tomorrow's educators, researchers, and clinicians. Located on campuses in Logan and 26 other sites throughout Utah. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Salt Lake Express, featuring year-round transportation to the Salt Lake City Airport from Logan, Ogden, and St. George. Information on bookings available at (music) saltlakeexpress.com. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We're talking with Jessica Luther, investigative reporter. Her book is Unsportsmanlike Conduct, College Football and the Politics of Rape. She uses the metaphor of a playbook, which uh, football teams use to coordinate their efforts. And she says this book is about a different kind of playbook, the one coaches, teams, universities, police communities, the media, and fans seem to follow whenever a college football player is accused of a sexual assault. And the goal seems to be to... Uh, have the scrutiny die down quickly 
and uh, so that uh, no institution ever has to change how it uh, operates. We'll talk uh, about uh, some specific cases. And uh, Jessica Luther, I want to talk about the, the, the playbook a little more and then get into this Tory Green case, which which has happened here at Utah State University in, in Logan. Um, is, is this conscious coordination? You know, the playbook implies that, you know, players all, uh, individual players all know the plays and, and they, they're trying to get to an end goal. Uh, perhaps not quite yeah. that coordinated, but what's uh, how coordinated do we think this is? Or this this just pressures, a lot of uh, financial pressures, pressures to win? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, some of it is coordinated. These, especially universities, have sort of a system that they use to, you know, have a PR message when things break. And so there's definitely sometimes coordination. You know, a lot of it is, we have really strong cultural narratives around sexual violence uh, just in general so that we don't have to pay attention to the seriousness of it. You know, the most famous and obvious one is that the woman is lying, that we don't need to trust that what she's reported is true. And there's a big fallback on this. You know, coaches don't need to worry about anything because unless he's convicted, how do we know? Um, And the implication always in that is that this woman is very possibly lying about what has happened to her, where statistics do not bear out that that is what is happening. Uh, I think it's the Department of Justice who has the stats at 2 to 8% of rape accusations are false, and that is on par with every other single kind of crime. Um, false accusation rates are basically steady across the board. We just tend to think of this is the one crime where we obsess over it. Um, And so I think there are certain ways where we're all primed to move on. Like no one really wants to engage this issue within our society. So when universities or coaches or the NCAA or even sports media who don't really want to deal with this um, as an issue, when they're ready to move on and they sort of tap into these things, you know, they imply that she could be lying. We will never really know. No one's been convicted. Um, Let's all just move on. Everyone's like, oh, okay. That feels familiar. I'm comfortable with that. And then we all just do it. So whether or not it's coordinated, sometimes it is, and and we find that out. But yeah, sometimes it's just people doing what's natural to them, which is often very damaging to survivors who've come forward. As I've been mentioning, there there is a case in uh, from here in Utah, to, here in Logan, in fact, to Utah State University. Uh, quoting from the Salt Lake Tribune, former Utah State University linebacker Tory Green was charged to uh, in five separate criminal cases, uh, accused of raping or sexually assaulting five women in two years in Cache County. Uh, he's now been charged with, with those uh, cases, but uh, apparently the, this happened November 2013 to November of 2015. And uh, for for a year or approximately a year um, after, after these reports, uh, and apparently the victims went uh, separately, three of them were... Uh, Utah State University students, so they went to the Sexual Assault and Violence Office. They reported them to uh, uh, police, and uh, apparently they went to the prosecutor, who declined to, uh, to press charges. And then later on, the, the Tribune, Salt Lake Tribune, started reporting on this, and now this is the result. Um, Utah State University uh, said that they, they followed procedure, you know, Title IX procedure and everything. The police say they followed procedure. The prosecutor looked at it, apparently. Um I wonder how how this matches up with cases that that, that you've seen. Uh, the the, the yeah. institutions here are saying that they they did, tried to do the right thing. Yeah, they that's what they say. Um, 
it's really the Tory Green stuff is very difficult. I was reading up on it a couple of weeks ago, and the Tribune has done amazing work around this issue in general within the Utah community. And kudos to the Tribune for that. Um, the Tory Green stuff is hard. Like they, at some point, there's a quote from a detective that says something like, "We need more victims." And for someone like me, you know, that hurts. Like the idea is like, well, yeah, if you wait long enough you will have them like it will happen because you've turned your back on this issue. And I, you know, a lot of what it reads like is that both the police, the prosecutor, even in the universities, like we're seeing these cases in isolation rather than all of them together and sort of the serial predator nature of, of, of green, according to what these women have said. And that's scary, but universities and cops do this. All the time. I mean, it's not an uncommon way to respond to this. I, you know, I talk a lot about Baylor. I just happen to know a lot about it. They've had two players convicted over the last three years. The first one was a guy who was reported by six different women before the, they finally arrested him. And Baylor never did anything about it until he was arrested. And he is now in jail. He was convicted. I think he was sentenced to 20 years for raping one of these women. Um, but yeah, just just the idea that people just sit and watch it happen over and over again, um, it's not uncommon. And we know that with this kind of crime, people will do it again if they get away with it. And so it's, it's sad. And, and Tory Green is sort of a great example of how people are able to look away when all of us looking back, you know, looking in hindsight, it's shocking that they could do that. How do you uh, how do we solve that isolation? You 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 know you talk about uh, and uh, you know the institutions have even talked about that. I I talked with uh, President Stan Albrecht who who said one when I asked him what what lesson do you, does he learn from this and he says one lesson that he learned was um, offices on campus uh, not talking to each other the way they should. USU has come out with recommendations to improve response to and prevention of sexual assault on Utah State. Uh, University, one of those centralized and coordinate oversight and responsibility. Uh, how do we, what are your recommendations to uh, break down isolation of, of reporting? Yeah, I think, well, one is to recognize it, like to recognize that they should be looking for repeat behavior, that this is part of, it's not always that, but that that is something that happens with this kind of crime. And yeah, I've talked, I was recently talking to someone who's an expert on these kind of things, and they were saying that. You know, at a university, uh, different different offices get siloed and that there needs to be an effort to, I don't know, create the right software, the right kind of databases so that if people are reporting in different places, there's like a sort of centralized way that it will flag this kind of repeat behavior. Um, but I mean, it is difficult. I do think, I mean, a big part of it for me as a journalist is just to continue to point out the kind of things that we just don't want to see. And one of them is the fact that people will often do this more than once. I mean, there are, there are universities that have systems where uh, someone can report, but they don't want to do anything with that information unless someone else reports. So the system is set up to flag when the next person reports. So if there's, a mul- if there's multiple reports, then they'll go back to that first person and say, okay, he's harming other people. And that will give that person the courage or the motivation to um, come forward and report. So 
they're working on different ways to to do this, and it you know it obviously is a thing um, that they need to be aware of. So, you know, we're watching universities scramble in real time to figure out how to manage all these things. The the cop side of that, the law enforcement, I think is is as troubling that a police officer and an investigator could know that there are multiple women and not put those pieces together. And I don't really know what to say about that part of it. Um, I don't know. Is that more training? I'm not, I'm not really sure, but the, yeah, it's a troubling story. There's another case at Utah State University, and we're going to make it seem like, uh, you know, problems at USU and not other places, but, uh, you know, as you've looked into many, many institutions are having troubles and going through these, these cases there, there's recent reporting again from the Salt Lake Tribune, that uh, a separate rape victim um, has come forward and is suing Utah State University. Uh, she alleges that USU student uh, Jason Ray Lopez, who has, I think, been charged and convicted in, in separate cases, uh, she says that USU knew at the time of her attack that Ray Lopez was a potential danger. And, uh, okay. and so she's, she's suing USU. This is, this is a very troubling aspect of this. Um, repeat offenders and what do institutions know and when do they know it and how do they protect other students uh, from, from suffering the same fate? Right. And, you know, so the thing we always hear about a lot is Title IX, uh, which is a really short, like, it's like 50 words long or something, the statute from 1972, I believe. And, but the whole idea behind Title IX is that it's your civil rights to be able to access education equally, you can't, you can't be denied access, access to education based on your gender or your orientation or how you identify, right? And so universities have a legal obligation to meet your civil rights. So if they know that someone on their campus has harassed someone else or committed violence or been reported for those things, they have an obligation to determine if that actually happened, because who can go to class if they think if they think they're going to see the person who raped them over the weekend, right? Um, if someone's severely harassing you, how are you going to be able to go to take a test if that person's going to be in the room or you have to see them on your way there? Universities have to meet these obligations. This is a civil rights issue. Part of this is um, there's another sort of parallel law, the, the Cleary Act, where uh, we might most famously think of it when schools send a text message to say that there's a shooter on campus. Like, that's a Cleary Act thing. They're operating underneath the Cleary Act because they have to warn you if they know that there's someone doing violence on campus in order to protect the university from that harm. Um, so we have these two different laws in place. And the universities, I mean, it's only been in the last five years especially, where they've really been under the microscope and under um, intense scrutiny from the federal government to really meet these obligations. They're very, I mean, Title IX from the early 70s, queries from the late 80s, like these are things that have been percolating for a long time, but universities do have to do this work. It's a civil rights issue. Uh, so, yeah, you mentioned uh, Clear Act, you mentioned uh, Title IX. There are laws in place. Uh, universities are looking at their, their procedures. I think uh, many institutions want to do a good job. Uh, but the law can only go so far, right? The culture has to change. What what mm-hmm. would you suggest to change to change the culture? Yeah, and this is the hardest part. And I think 
I mean, I will just say this. I mean, we just elected someone president who admitted on video that he gropes women whether or not they ask for it, you know. Um, we have cultural issues that are very deep and and scary in a lot of ways. Um, and so, yeah, changing the culture on a campus is hard and it's going to take a long time. And I think that's, that's hard to accept knowing that harm is being done while we're slowly changing the machine. Um, you know, a big thing that's happened over the last few years and continues to happen, the survivors are coming forward in bigger and bigger numbers. And, you know, they can't always do that. There are survivors who will never be able to come forward. They are scared. They worry what will happen to their financial situation, what retaliation they will face. Um, and there's no shame in not coming forward under in this world that we live in that does not treat survivors kindly. But I think the fact that we are seeing so many survivors come forward in a host of different spaces, you know, Lady Gaga had 50 of them on the stage at the Oscars. Uh, social media has given them unmediated ways to, to tell their stories and that they've never had before. Student activists on campus across the country, you know, all the women at Fox News who came out about the harassment that they faced from their boss. We're seeing it all over the place. And I think this is a this is the biggest thing that so many people know survivors of sexual violence and they don't know they know them. They actually have no idea that the person sitting next to them that they've probably known for 15 years actually is a survivor. And as people find out sort of the ubiquity of this issue, the fact that it is all the time and affects so many people, that to me seems to be having, that's starting the shift. Um, we need empathy and compassion for survivors. One thing that I hear about with, you know, Title IX implementation and universities are obsessed with complying and of course they are. That's the law. But, you know, I heard a survivor say recently, like, it can't just be compliance. It has to be compassion, too. And so sort of how we do that is hard. But inserting empathy and compassion for survivors, figuring out how, how to make that a reality, um, I think that that's going to be the biggest thing. And, and it will take time. Let's take another break. When we come back, I want to get into uh, a little bit more on the, the playbook as it is, part one. And then to talk a bit more about part two, how it could be. Um, and uh, you have a list of 13 plays, including Consent is Cool, Get Some, Understand Trauma, Go Federal, Intervene Maybe. I want to talk about that one. There's an interesting uh, case of a, I, I a fellow football player, I think, fellow an athlete who... Uh, his his play is to uh, divert his fellow athletes. He he's an intervener. He he stays sober during parties. But you say there there are some some um, problems sometimes with intervening. Um, we'll uh, talk a bit about uh, some of those plays. How it could be solutions to the problem following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Chamber Music Society of Logan presents the Imani Winds Quintet, bridging European American. African, and Latin American traditions, Thursday, November 10th at 7.30 p.m. in the USU Performance Hall. Information at cmslogan.org. As a way of introducing you to Utah projects and people that empower, UPR has produced a series of radio programs. Hi, 
I'm Candy Carter Olson, and I'm an assistant professor of media and society in the journalism and communication department at Utah State University. And I'm inviting you to listen to Objectified More Than a Body right here Tuesday afternoons at 4.30 and Wednesday mornings at 7.41. To listen to past programs, go to upr.org. Objectified More Than a Body is a Utah Public Radio original series. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Global Village Gifts Annual Nativity Night event. Friday, November 11th from 6 to 9 at 69 East, 100 North in Logan. Featuring nativities from around the world, all handmade under the principles of fair trade. Information at globalvillagegifts.org. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We're talking with investigative reporter Jessica Luther. Her book is Unsportsmanlike Conduct, College Football and the Politics of Rape. Uh, Jessica Luther, along with uh, Dan Sullivan, broke the story about a Baylor football player on trial for sexual assault. That case was known at the time only by a few in the community, not reported in the media for nearly two years after her and uh, Dan's uh, story broke. Uh, Of course, uh, it went big. The result was eventually the firing of the coach, uh, Art Bryles, um, uncovering of uh, many cases. Um, and, uh, Jessica Luth, that's where I want to start this, uh, segment. Uh, it seems like that's where, you know, thank heavens for the media, uh, your stories, the stories like we've been talking about, it seems like sometimes it comes down to, uh, reports in the media and then action is, is taken. How, how do we get that changed? How do we get institutions to, uh, you know, to act sooner without prodding from the media? I'm not sure. Um, I actually, you know, one thing I do talk about is that alumni could possibly put pressure on their institutions to do the right thing from the jump. Uh, you know, I, you know, when institutions are hiring Title IX coordinators, those are often very sincere people who want to do a good job but are up against, you know, huge numbers. Like I think the University of Texas, there's 50,000 students there, and they have a small team of people who who do this work. Um, but yeah, universities respond to the PR pressure to what is happening outside. You know, I wish that, you know, that I wish that in everyone's heart, they would, they would change and they would care very deeply for survivors and making a world that's safer and more comfortable for them. But at the same time, I don't, I don't actually care about what's in their hearts. If, if something will get them to change to mitigate that harm, and right now what we're seeing is going to the media and telling your story um, has an effect. And if that's the thing doing it, then I'm, I'm glad that that's what's happening. You know, and, it, and like I said before, survivors are also taking to social media. So there's definitely, you know, there's been really good local work from the Tribune um, in Salt Lake. We've seen, you know, the Tennessean and Tennessee has done a lot of work around this locally. So there's local papers in different places doing incredible work. That matters a lot. But there's also just, you know, in the Baylor case earlier this year, a woman wrote a viral or she wrote a blog post that went viral. And that had a huge effect on other survivors coming forward. It sort of reignited the conversation around the university. It ended up in the wake of that blog post, something almost 2,000 Baylor alumni signed a letter to the administration asking them, telling them to do something, anything to fix what was happening on campus. So, yeah, um, kind of lost my train of thought there, but I, I, oh, okay. 
I do think, I don't know what else to do at this point. And if this is working, then I'm, I'm glad that something is working. Um, your editor, Dave Zirin, uh, he quotes Kurt Cobain in his foreword. I just want to read this. Rape is one of the most terrible crimes on earth, and it happens every few minutes. The problem with groups who deal with rape is that they try to educate women about how to defend themselves. What really needs to be done is teaching men not to rape. That's uh, Kurt Cobain. Um, and I think, you know, I think society, we're, we're moving more in that direction, but perhaps there's still a an attitude of, well, men are men, you know, and that, that's, oh, <laughs> and that attitude absolutely. offends me as a man, you know, I, I think we need to accelerate this, this, this teaching to our, our young men that you, you can't do this and you can't condone this with, with your, with your fellows. Yeah, this is one thing to me. Yeah, men should be really upset about that. <laughs> like this idea that like, you can't help but go around and do this kind of violence to other people. Like that should be offensive. Um to men that are not doing this, right? Uh, but that that quote from Cobain is so incredibly accurate. We spend a lot of time teaching women, especially preventative things to make sure that they don't get raped, when really the only thing you can do to not get raped is don't, don't be near a rapist, which, you know, how do you determine that? And so if we're actually going to solve this issue, we need to be doing preventative education, especially geared at men, um, about consent and boundaries and respect and, you know, sexism and misogyny and these things that are all just sort of taken for granted that are bad. And, you know, one thing I talk about in, when I talk about consent, this is sort of one of these hopeful things for me is that, you know, for a long time, most people are very familiar with no means no which is you should stop if someone says no, like, absolutely, that is good. That's a, that's a good rule. But we are shifting towards thinking of consent as yes means yes. And this, to me, identifies an important shift. It's very small, but it's, it's, but also big. And in that no means no puts all of the burden on the person about to be victimized to stop it. So they have to say no. They have to fight hard enough. They have to make it very clear that whatever is about to happen, they do not want it to happen. And if they don't do that, then consent is there, apparently, in the no means no situation. Yes means yes is where both people in that moment have to know they have to say yes and the other person has to acknowledge that. And so the burden shifts from one person, the victim, to both people and that matters. Like both people in that moment should make, should know 100% sure that the other person wants to be doing what they're doing. And if that, if they don't know that, then consent is not there. And that's a much, to me, a much healthier way to imagine this very important concept. Um, and we're seeing just sort of, we're talking about it this way, this yes means yes, but like in California, they actually changed the law to be about affirmative consent, as it's called. Um, and I think that's important. And I'm, I'm glad to see that we're having a better conversation around that kind of, around that idea of consent. Uh, play number seven in your part two, how it could be in your book, teach coaches to teach uh, boys to be men. What if you talk mm-hmm. a little bit about that? Yeah, well, you know, I always like to mention that we have a whole, like, Hollywood industry around the influence of coaches on their players and how how excited we get about this idea that 
coaches can change these guys' lives and they can shape them as into men, right? Um, we've, I can immediately pe- picture Denzel Washington getting the team to run through the snow in, in, Phil- or in Pennsylvania or wherever. Um, you know, I'm, I was obsessed with Friday Night Lights, one of my favorite shows ever. Coach Taylor, um, and I believe this. I believe that coaches have this ability. But what happens when something bad happens, when a player does something bad, we instantly say, That's I, that was on that one guy, has nothing to do with the coach, nothing to do with the team. He's all by himself. But if that guy does something good, then it's like, oh, the coach, it's all his influence. This is why this guy's a really good guy. And it just doesn't work that way. Like if we're going to believe that he can – help him do good and we have to believe that when something goes badly especially multiple players over a you know a course of a few years that something is rotten there and that the coach has something to do with it and so these coaches are often also brought up in the same system that I'm critiquing and I just you know so it's not enough to just say coaches to teach boys to it, you know, coach them into being good men. Um, we need coaches to get the training in order to do this. And that training exists. Uh, Futures Without Violence has a program called Coaching Boys Into Men. It's amazing. It's incredibly effective. It builds these lessons, these issues that I care about, directly into the coaching um, on a consistent basis throughout the season. But the thing about it is that for it to be effective – the coach has to want to do it. So it's the coaches who don't care about this, who are dragged into it. They won't do the work properly. And, you know, those coaches have to be held accountable for that too, and that's where sort of outside pressure comes in. And um, But I do think coaches matter. We need better ones. I believe they can do this. There's just Dallas Morning News just wrote a great piece a couple weeks ago about a coach who makes his high school players sit through, like, consent education PowerPoints, and he won't – you can – get in trouble and not be allowed to play if you use misogynistic language in the locker room or on the field. Like that is so important. And I was really happy to see that. What I think one of the things that uh, needs to change, I don't know if you think it is changing is, is this idea of minimizing uh, the crime. You cited a case from BYU mm-hmm. in 2004. Uh, this actually went to mm-hmm. trial. I think they were, uh, some players were acquitted and I'm not, uh, you quote a player who I think at least observed sexual assault, um, and uh, I don't know if this was juror that said uh, the players had suffered enough. They'd, they'd yeah. m- missed some games. They'd been essentially, from my point of view, slapped on the wrist. They'd suffered enough. Yeah, that's. I mean, it was a horrible, I think it was a gang rape trial, which is actually not uncommon with football, uh, which is a sort of scary thing about the cases that I have found. But yeah, after the jury quits them, they then say, well, you know, I thought it was bad, but they had already been punished because they didn't get to play football, which is just sort of mind-boggling when you think about it. Like, this idea that, that that's enough to say that raping someone is bad, that they missed some football games. Um, and that's, you know, that's a criminal justice system at work there. That's not, you know, a coach saying this. Um, yeah, the minimizing. We just don't seem to think it's a real issue. Uh, and I think, you know, one thing I talk about, I, I mainly critique sports media because that's what I write in, but media in general around reporting sexual violence often doesn't report how violent these crimes are. They sort of, there's 
they like media likes to write about this issue in the passive voice so much so that there's been studies done on the impact of writing about sexual violence in the passive voice, which what it does is it makes the reader believe that the person is lying and that nothing bad happened. And so there are ways that we talk around the actual violence of these, of these um, cases. And so people don't have to engage with what's actually happening. They can just imagine it's regretful sex when in fact it's a violent act. And yeah, it's, it's hard to read about it. Like as soon as you said that BYU case in 2000, I was like, Oh, like I just felt myself sink because I know I knew what you're going to say. And it, it makes me sad. Um, and we keep doing it. Uh, that's, that's one thing that worries me is that this is, this is a repeated pattern that doesn't seem to be going away. And uh, that's community issue, right? Because these are jurors. So uh, anyway, we're, we're at the end of our time. And I mentioned the, the, the bystander. You, um, and we'll have to have you read the book for, for that. Uh, many other uh, possible solutions to this very serious problem that uh, we experience as a society. Unsportsmanlike conduct, college football, and the politics of rape is the book. Jessica Luther has joined us. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. Thank you for listening to Access Utah. We go now to commentator Gina Wickwar. As I write, people all over this country are headed for the polls. That is, the ones who haven't mailed in their ballots already or stood in line in the early voting queues. But I must admit, after 15 months, I can't bear to talk about it anymore. And so we'll turn my attention to something way less scary, Halloween. I know Halloween was last week, but it holds a special place in my heart. One, it's our daughter's birthday, and two, it's the birthday of two of my good friends. Try hunting for three Halloween birthday cards at Coppins once a year. It's not for the faint of heart, let me tell you, but when I find them, I load them up just in case. Halloween has been a bit of an odd holiday for me through the years. Blame this on the fact I grew up in a military family, which meant that every couple of years we lived in a new place and had to figure out the Halloween rituals of that particular town or Air Force Base. You frown, asking how on earth could Halloween be any different from place to place. Well, in some communities, it was totally unacceptable to trick-or-treat after 8 p.m. and or if you were older than 13. But in the next locale, boys whose voices had changed and who were growing small beards were out mingling with two-year-old pixies and five-year-old caterpillars. In other places, the masked skeletons on the porch had to ask politely for some candy and not to shout out, trick or treat. This was misery-making since you had spent the last 364 days practicing those demands. But in the next place, screeching trick or treat was considered the hallmark of the evening. In other places, it was considered ill-mannered to grab more than one piece of candy from the bag. Those bullies who grabbed handfuls were not considered gentlefolk and were looked down upon as selfish social outcasts. In the next place, however, they were viewed as awesome rule-breakers. And there's the historical changes in trick-or-treating that we've all seen evolve. Those of us of a certain age or older can well recall the fact that soaping car windows was considered the cleverest, riskiest, and most sophisticated trick you could pin on that old grouch who opened the door, growled at you, then slammed it in your face without throwing out even one Snickers or Mars bar. This was considered the ultimate insult to the ghosts and goblins shivering on his porch. Soaping his windows was revenge, according to local mores. 
Along with this came TPing trees around the houses that had turned off their front porch lights. We'll get you for that, our little pretty. And we did. Within five minutes, four rolls of toilet paper had been flung far up in the reaches of bare maple branches. Revenge is sweet, saith the seven-year-old witches and ten-year-old Roy Rogers as they rub their talons and jingle their spurs. Or there were the tons of smashed jack-o'-lanterns strewn along streets and gutters. Getting away with this mayhem was considered a symbol of boldness, bravery, and a certain K-6 through panache. Those pumpkin shredders could march around the playground the next day with puffed-up chests and sly smirks of pride. Everyone knew who they were but would die before revealing their names to parents. It was, in that day's lingo, the cat's pajamas. We haven't seen that kind of behavior in many, many years. In fact, in the last 28 years we've been in Logan, we've encountered very, very few lapses of good trick-or-treat mannering. The smashed pumpkins of 15 years ago have long disappeared. We've never once seen soap car windows. We've never had 20-year-old boys ring our bell, nor had our trees teepeed. What we have seen over the years is a large majority of masked adventurers asking, please, before taking a Tootsie Roll. This is Gina Whitgore. A service of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University, this is Utah Public Radio. Heard statewide on KUSR, Logan, KUSK, Vernal, KUSL, Richfield, KUST, Moab, KCEU, Price, and KUSUFM, Logan.